Welcome to the podcast. It's dedicated to making you a faster cyclist, the Ask a Cycling Coach podcast presented by Trainer Road. I'm Coach Jonathan Lee, and here with me is Coach Chad Timmerman. Hello. And our CEO and co-founder, Nate Pearson. Hello. And today we're going to take all of your coaching, training-related questions as we do every week. You can submit your questions to us at support at trainerroad.com, and we'll put them into a queue and get to as many as we can next week. Hopefully we get to yours. You can also find this podcast on iTunes. You can find it on SoundCloud, and you can find it on Stitcher as well. Just search for Trainer Road or Ask a Cycling Coach, and you should find us no problem there. And while you're there, leave us a review if you feel so inclined. Um, let us know what we're doing well, what we can improve on, whatever you wish. We'll take it all, and we'll, we'll make the podcast even better if we get any of that feedback. Uh, we'll go ahead and kick things off with Lisette's uh, question first. She asks, or she says, hello, in order to get the most accurate FTP, how much pressure do I have to put on the trainer against the tire? And she has in parentheses, how many turns? Okay. So on, on this question, there's two things. One, if you're using a power meter, it doesn't matter how tight the pressure is. All I kind of recommend is like what I do is I tighten down the rear tire and then I kind of use my hand and jerk it so that it doesn't slip because you don't want any slippage while you're riding. That's just annoying. If you're using something called virtual power, which is a trainer road product that turns your trainer into a power meter. And what we do there is, uh, we have power curves for trainers. So like at a Kirk kinetic row machine, we've hooked up a power meter to that and we've tested the, uh, the power at different speeds. And then with the speed sensor, you can train like you have a power meter. So in that case, it's really going to depend on what trainer you have. But in general, what we do, what we recommend, say you have a tire, you pump it up to 120 PSI, if that's what your tire goes to. And then what I do is like on a road machine, I tighten it down. So the tire just barely touches the drum. And then I do five full revolutions of the rear, um, tightener. That seems like a ton. I know, but your tire will be okay. At least on the road machine. Um, everyone's a little bit different. What's important with virtual power over virtual power is that you just keep your setup consistent. So every time that you mount it on there, do that same thing, pump it up, use the same tire, just barely touch it. And if it's, you know, on some trainers, it might be three on like a Cyclops Floyd two row machine, four or five, just have the same every time. Then you can have consistent training and you'll have a consistent power output. And how I say, it's kind of like going to the gym and imagine all the weights were five pounds off. You could still get really fit as long as you're making that progression and the scale is all the same. And that's what virtual power is. Yeah, that's a good point. And one thing that at least helps me, like Nate said, um, you don't want the tire to slip easily. Having said that, if you get out of the saddle and just punch on it as hard as you can, you'll probably get some slippage out of it. That's, you know, that's, that's not going to, don't worry if you get a little bit of slip when you're sprinting as hard as you can out of the saddle on the thing. Um, if it happens a lot to you, um, what you can do is you can get a, uh, trainer tire. So I know Chad at his studio, we used a lot of continental trainer tires. They're orange Mm -hmm. and they're a little bit sticky. Um, Never ride those outside. You'll fall down. But with when it's on metal or if you have something like a comp trainer that heats up a lot, um, you can eat your tire through. I've I actually probably wasted about $100 of tires at Chad's classes back, I don't know, eight years ago uh, with that until I bought a Continental tire. That's really... I, if you have like a road machine or something that, that doesn't heat up, that's not a big deal. And if you really want to sprint, you can get a direct drive um, trainer like the Wahoo Kicker. Yeah, that's a good point. And one thing that can help, at least how Nate said, the five full revelation or revolutions, a lot of those trainers, uh, or a lot of trainers now are coming with little hash marks to help you keep track of it. But if not, good old whiteout can, or a paint pen can help you in making sure you keep track of that um, as you turn the dial. So next question is from Sean. I'm a 45-year-old who mostly does 50 to 100-mile endurance mountain bike races and 100 to 200-mile century in Grand Fondo rides. I'm in the best shape of my life, but over the last four to five years, I've noticed a significant decline in my ability to recover. My personality is just to keep training, which eventually results in my overtraining and running myself down. This is, this is a common story, right guys? <laughs> I've become obsessed with trying to objectively figure out when I'm recovered rather than just using my perce- perceived feeling. That's a good step. So his question, I would love to get any advice from you on methods to figure out when I'm recovered enough to do the next workout or take another rest day. From everything I've heard from your podcast, resting beats per minute or measuring your resting heart rate is a good method. So I've been tracking for about a month, but I need your input on what metrics are actually recovered or not. After that, he shares his his heart rate values. But Chad, are there any principles at work here that you would want to look out for? 
Yeah. Because it'll vary for person to person, right? <clears throat> yeah. Th- there's a lot of factors at play here. And I know a while back I made uh, a comment where I talked about if my waking heart rate is such and such, I don't do the workout that day. And there's actually more that goes into it than that. I mean, I consider a lot of variables, but that's that's the first indicator that uh, maybe I need to look at a few other things today. Um, and, and for me, it's, you know, if I'm about five BPM out of line, that that's what raises my hackles. And, and, and then I start to look at other things. And amongst those other things, and, and I'm just going to kind of pillage this from RestWise because I use their website to track this stuff. And, and it quantifies or at least tracks the things that are of most concern. And, and those are things like your sleep, both uh, the quality and the quantity of your sleep, how you feel in terms of your mood and your energy, um, what's your appetite like? What's your urine color like? Because you know the lighter it is, typically the better off you are in terms of hydration status. Um, what yesterday's performance was like? You know, are you sore throat, headachey? Do you have you know are you a little bit run down, have flu like symptoms, any injuries, muscle soreness, etc. So there, there's a lot that goes into it, and you kind of have to you know compare that from from ride to ride, week to week, month to month. So you're 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 always growing this database. You know when I feel like this. I tend to have not the greatest workouts, but I get through them pretty well. But when I feel like this, I have terrible workouts. This is probably a good day to pass. And you can start to associate how you feel with some of these more objective measures over time. Something that I've noticed too, I mentioned on the podcast before about my low immune system that can help me or makes it so I don't recover as well. But also I've, I've gone to a doctor. I'm kind of in between. Next week I get to go see him again for sleep apnea. My wife noticed that I'm, so I'm not a snorer but that I would kind of breathe down and then I would go <gasps> like mm. in the middle of the night or sound like I'm choking. And I just did a, a really hard workout two days ago. And she said, man, you woke me up. You you did it so much at night. And I think there's a correlation with me, at least with the harder I work, the more kind of the sleep apnea I do. And I'll sleep for 10 hours and just feel exhausted when I wake up. I'm hoping that I can get what's called a CPAP machine that kind of forces air into your lungs, but I'll know more about that next week and I'll totally update everyone to see um, what the results are. And and two, if you hear this, this is this is what I used to do when I listened to podcasts. Someone would be like, oh, I'm a celiac, gluten intolerant. I'd be like, oh, I am too. I get tired. I must not eat gluten. And I'd go off on this thing. So uh, I, I, I did like a sleep study with a whole bunch of wires hooked up to me and they my breathing, my heart rate and my movement. Um, so there is like science behind that. I just haven't gotten the results yet. So we'll see what he says. Maybe he just says I have to HTFU and train harder. <laughs> That'd be funny. <laughs> that would be, that's a cyclist doctor. If so, <laughs> um, and one thing to point out here, uh, Sean, you specifically point out some different heart rates that you've had everything from ranging from 41 to 42 beats per minute to 40 uh, up to 55 beats per minute. So Chad shared a good example of he knows his range, right? And the way that he knows his range is after measuring it for a certain period of time, you kind of get data. For months, actually. Yep. And I'm in the same boat. I didn't know really how to use my resting heart rate. In fact, I I skipped a few workouts and I really didn't have to um, until I figured it out. And then once I started to figure it out, I realized that when my resting heart rate gets past X, that it's probably a sign of either I'm getting sick or I'm training too hard. What is it for you, Jonathan? Yeah, for me, this is just personal to Jonathan. Yeah, so exactly right. This is just for me. So my resting heart rate normally when I'm sleeping is about 37 beats per minute. But then when I wake up, and if my resting heart rate I've found is above 45 beats per minute, generally I'm I'm going to be worn down. How do you guys measure it in the morning? Yeah, I same thing. My my resting heart rate is typically like 38 to 40 right in there. And then if I wake up and it's in the high 40s, low 50s, that's my indicator. And uh, lately I've been using, um, I have a pulse oximeter, but uh, lately I've been using the iPad or uh, iWatch. And I've been using, so just like Apple Chad, Watch. the problem that I had is that I wouldn't wake up the same every time. So I felt that I had variables in adjusting my, you know, you wake up from a nightmare and your heart rate's through the roof, right? <laughs> um, you wake up and you just have to get up, sit up out of bed and grab something to measure your heart rate. You're probably going to have a different heart rate than you would if you were actually getting a true resting heart rate. You wear a chest strap, you're probably just hating your life anyway, trying to sleep with a chest strap on. So who knows how you rested. Um, so I use a Fitbit and it's got an optical heart rate sensor. And then the app actually just keeps track of my sleep and it graphs my sleep in, or graphs my heart rate while I sleep. And that's, that's a great way. And it, and it calculates your resting heart rate high. In fact, DC Rainmakers pointed that out, that it's a, it's a high estimation of your heart rate. Um, but you can look at that and get a feel for what it is. And once again, it's kind of like power. As long as it's consistent in the way you're measuring it, then you can use that data. That's, I was going to tell you guys both that. It's, it's optical. 
um, the accuracy of that is lower. And I, I don't really know how much less accurate it is, but if it's going to affect your training, mm-hmm. maybe just well, that's, rest on that's, I've got back to the, the pulse oximeter because it's, it's, it's nearby, so I can just reach up and grab it. I stay prone, so I'm still laying down. I put it on, and I give it a minute or two because you know, if I wake up with my alarm, that, that raises my heart rate a bit. Um, any, any shifting in position, you know, I, I flop over so that I'm on my back. Um, I have that thing on and I give it a minute or two to kind of, kind of stabilize. And then, and then I go from there. Yeah. And, and as far as the optical heart rate goes, I, in my, in my experience, so I use a Wahoo ticker. I found that that's when I'm when I'm training, I found that that's the best heart rate monitor that I've used as far as no, no erroneous data coming from it. And with my fit, say, say what you will about these little Fitbits, but with my Fitbit charge HR, I have graphed and seen the data it's actually dead on with my with my ticker. The That's only issue, the only issue is that it's delayed, right? So when I'm sleeping, it's fine because we're talking about a long period of time where my activity isn't varying. But when I'm, if I would never use it if I was, I mean, I have problems of structuring workouts on heart rate anyway, just due to its variable nature. But with a Fitbit, it would be terrible to do so because of the fact that it's very smooth data. I think Fitbit's worried about getting spikes or noisy data, so they smooth it out a little too much. But just the same, if you give me two minutes at a set of effort level, it's going to be the same exact data that I get from my ticker, at least in this case with the Charge HR. And I, I wear it on my wrist. I don't have to wear it choked up onto my arm. I just wear it wherever it sits on my wrist, and it isn't even that tight. It still works really well. So if I'm running, though, I have noticed that running can give it some spikes in there. So maybe the jarring or something else. I'm not sure what it would do. So I hope that gives you enough info there, Sean. Micah, thanks for your system. I've used it now about one and a half years and the results are excellent. Good stuff. I've read all your blog posts and listened to all the podcasts. I started my base training with a mid-volume traditional base, but after uh, I got some information um, from the podcast, it sounds like, I've, I think sweet spot base may be a little better for me. So the question, and we actually are getting a fair amount of these questions right now, Chad. Um, I'm in week five of traditional base training. How should I change to sweet spot in the middle of base training? So Micah, I'm guessing that you're on a 12 week base trajectory, in which case you're about halfway through it. And, and it's a good time just to jump straight over to sweet spot base two. There's really nothing you're going to encounter in the second half of the sweet, sweet spot base plan that you were, you haven't been prepared for in the first you know five or six weeks of traditional. So it'll throw you a little more er, er, uh, readily into VO2 max work, but again, uh, you're you're about braced for it and ready for it. So I think you can just cut straight across the sweet spot base too. Yeah, and one thing that you mentioned there, Chad, you said it might throw you into VO2 max work more than what you've been doing. Uh, be prepared for the workouts to feel tough, um, just because uh, once again you have to trust in the fitness, like Chad said, that you're building. You have the fitness to do it. Um, it's just a different effort level that may be a little tougher, right, Chad? At first. Yeah, there's a big disparity between the first six weeks of traditional base and the first six weeks of sweet spot base. So definitely brace yourself for some some harder efforts, but nothing you can't handle. Yeah, you can do it. Yes. Dan, hi guys. I just rode petite yesterday and fo- refocused on pedaling technique. That's one of our workouts for those that don't know, where you are kicking over the top of the pedal stroke and pulling back from the four o'clock position. I find when executed correctly, I get free watts. Free watts are sweet. <laughs> I get free watts from this efficient pedaling method. However, I find it difficult to maintain continuously, especially the action of pulling back from four o'clock. Uh, first of all, before we go any further, Chad, is that, I mean, I, I know for me that that's common, right? I mean, uh, for me personally, yeah, it so, is. Yeah, so when we start to break down the pedal stroke, we're not looking to exactly derive power from each of the four quadrants and, you know, improve how much power you get out of the top quadrant, how much power you get out of the back quadrant. We're looking for a, most, a more seamless pedal stroke. So we're just trying to teach fluidity and, and, and greater pedaling efficiency so that you're not, you're not wasteful, so that you're not rolling through sections of the pedal stroke that could be a little more active. Um, so you may find that certain quadrants or certain portions of the pedal stroke are a little more laborious than others. doesn't mean you have to improve there. This means you might be a little bit weak there. That might be a little slower in terms of, uh, how, how, you know, your pedal stroke improves in that particular quadrant. So I wouldn't think too much about it. I also wouldn't place too much emphasis on it. These are all really subtle actions. I mean, the downstroke is still the king. That's where you get all your power. Everything else is just kind of icing on that cake. Yeah. As, as Chad said, there's like two spectrums to this. There's someone who's, you know, brand new cycling and they're horrible. Um, and then there's like a complete 360. Everything is even with your power output. 
And it, there was a very interesting study a while back. I think this is maybe 15 or 20 years now, but it showed the top Tour de France riders, their downstroke was the dominant part of their stroke. And that's, that is what we recommend too. We don't want you to be a perfect 360. Um, it's just the, the, the muscles in your leg. But it is good. You don't want to have 100% on the downstroke and then just be like picking your leg up. So that's what these drills are. It's supposed to, like you said, efficiency. So you're not trying to uh, kind of push on the pedals in a direction that doesn't actually make the pedals move. And you're unweighting your foot. And it, it's getting more um, fluid, but it's not... Don't think that I have to have my upstroke be just as much power as my downstroke. Yeah, one big problem I've seen with this is um, videos and everything else that have come out and different articles that have shown like recently that, you know, pedaling with a more smooth pedal stroke all the way around is not making a per certain person faster. And then the, and, and I'm thinking of the GCN video that I've seen on the pedal stroke. And essentially the conclusion was pedal like you pedal, that makes you faster. Now, granted these guys that they're dealing with, these are, these are ex pro cyclists. And there is something to be said for what you said, Nate, in the sense that a lot of us, we see that and we just think, oh, then I just need to pedal exactly how I'm pedaling. But chances are, we all could refine our pedal stroke more. It may not make us necessarily, um, in one respect, a lot faster on the bike, but it also, in fact, one of the guys from the telegraph telegraph cycling podcast mentioned this, he's they're using trainer road right now, uh, to go through these training plans. And he said in the middle of his FTP test, he said his legs were, his quads were feeling worked. So he started switching. He started thinking of the drills that he was doing. So he started pulling back. And when he started pulling back, he said, it's like he had a second wind. He was able to do that for a while. Then kind of, he eventually morphed back into his normal pedal stroke, but it helped him keep, you know, his power target where it is. So, you know, there's a lot of different reasons behind why we're doing this and, and don't necessarily take it as gospel that you should just pedal however you pedal and, yeah, I, or don't take it as gospel that you should pedal perfectly. Right. The, uh, it's this, I think this came from the, I love the guys. They're very nice guys. The compu trainer guys that did the spin scan. And I remember, I remember going back, I don't know, 10 years ago doing a fit and a coach or a, a fitter there goes, the best cyclist can go a hundred. Like you get a score of a hundred where it's perfectly smooth. Uh, he was wrong. Uh, it's just yeah. people say, <laughs> people ask us all the time, get spin scan into it, get spin scan into it. Uh, we don't do it because there's, it's, it's not something we want you to do. We don't want you to be a hundred percent smooth. So mm-hmm. oh, we probably spent enough time on that, but just that's my uh, stance on that. Probably have. Now, the one uh, point that Dan makes here, he says, I recently upgraded from a flat saddle to a Sele SMP and has a dip in the middle of the saddle and a rise in the front and in the rear of the pelvic bones to allow riders to push off these sections. I don't know if you guys have seen these. They have a huge cutout in the center and they kind of look like you're sitting in the middle of a tiny water slide. They're massive, (laughs) that arc in them. Um, Since I'm dialing it in with the new saddle fit, can you offer any recommendations as to whether moving it higher Fore and aft by a few millimeters is something that can help make this push over and pull back portion of the pedal stroke more natural. What do you think, Chad? I mean, um, I actually, I'm going to leave the more techie end of that to you guys. Cause I think that's better answered by you guys. But, um, my stance on saddles is, is, is there's two points. Um, they're highly subjective. You find the right saddle, marry yourself to it by five of those things. Cause, cause uh, upgrading to a different saddle, looking for the next best thing is more problematic than it's worth. Secondly, I think that most saddles fit most people. I think the issue comes with how people position themselves on their saddle and, and the fact that they can't maintain that position under load. So, you know, they spin too quickly or they spin more quickly than they're used to. Um, they're working harder. They're fatiguing. Their position changes. But the, the fact is, is what I consider to be a proper position on the saddle, you know, a pretty neutral pelvis with maybe a very slight forward tilt is what most people where most people need to be and where a lot of people aren't, especially those people who are constantly changing their saddles, looking for that one magic saddle that's going to fit them just right. Really, it's it's a question of how well you position yourself on the saddle. I'm in the, the camp where I had my first saddle. I, I just got used to it and it was awesome. And I rode it for like three years and then I broke it. And I've spent like way too much money trying to chase that one saddle back. So I agree, Chad, I should have done that and just bought a whole bunch of them. Uh, right. yeah. But the... Um, as far as positioning goes, no, I don't, I don't have any opinion on it rather than just you know, make sure you have, you know, good leg extension. It's not too high or too low. And there's plenty of articles about doing that and that your knee isn't going to go in front of your, uh, your foot at certain, uh, you know, when it's at the three o'clock position so that you don't put stress on your patella tendon and get injured there. Yeah. That's the more important thing. Don't move your saddle to improve a portion of your pedal stroke. 
your, your saddle position should be a product of a proper fit that's done just to help you biomechanically work efficiently. Right. So, and as far as, uh, having that dip so that you can push off the front or back of the pelvis, I almost wonder if that's one of those, like just circumstances that happen with the design. And then they say it's a feature. Cause I'm, I'm not really sure you should be pushing off with the front or back of your pelvis to, to change your pedal stroke necessarily. Ideally, what that saddle does is that saddle just locks your pelvis into a position or doesn't lock it, but it supports your pelvis in a proper position. I think that's more their goal there. So I hope that helps Dan, um, with all that. Sean asks, I've just finished cyclocross races back into base for, and you're back into base for December. Uh, then you're going to go into a build for January to February for 2016. Your plan is to focus more on track and velodrome racing and the track racing calendar where you live peaks in late April to early June. Then again, in late July to early August, and finally September, October, and then you're back into cross. So here we'll get into things. He says, my road races are mostly local crits and TTs. These are B or C level priority races for me. And my track racing is my A priority stuff. And he even says it's A plus if he can make a new category. So my question is, my power profile is that of a time trialer. And what he's referring to there is the fact that he's, he's good at putting out high amounts of power for a longer duration of time. On the track, I can hold my own in longer pursuits, scratch races, points races, etc. Anything longer than three kilometers. But short races, like a 200-meter flying lap, 500 meters, one-kilometer TT, etc., I'm just not hitting the big watts and usually end up at the back of the pack. I'm hitting the gym big time, but what training plans do you recommend for track sprints? Yeah, so Sean, in your case, you're looking for you know big anaerobic power, anaerobic capacity, anaerobic endurance. We don't really have a plan that addresses that specifically. But um, as soon as I finish up the try build and uh, try specialty modifications, I'm moving on to what we're going to call training camps. And You're we're going to use the these. That's okay. <laughs> do it. Go do it. When, when they happen, I can't first promise. Launch. First launch. It, it's Good coming. Stuff. But they're going to be um, devoted to specific aspects of, of uh, fitness. So in your case, you would probably use either our, our sprint training camp or our VO2 max training camp. We'll just, um, the details of all of these is yet to be worked out, yeah. but they're, they're going to be intensive, focused on one thing. Um, if they're long enough, they'll details. include maintenance of other aspects. Yeah, I should probably should just stop, just talking. stop talking. They're, they're coming though. The idea <laughs> is that we'll have training camps built in our software where you can focus on an energy system that you have a limiter on. And that's all we're going to say right now. Chad's going to launch exactly. it. Cool. <laughs> we could fix this in post, but no, we we'll could probably do it. just that leave fine. it in. It's, it, and the <laughs> podcast listeners should get a little bit more... Uh, I agree. Dedicated people. Little glimpse into what's coming. Yeah, exactly. Kudos for listening. So, so to let you know, Sean, or just to go back to the principle based approach, like Chad said, you're going to be looking to build that anaerobic power, that anaerobic uh, capacity, endurance, everything else. So Chad, is there anything just in the meantime, as far as like different Mm -hmm. uh, training that he can do to help improve that? And and is this something that can come quickly or should he expect to wait for something like this? He's got time too, because build in January and February. Yeah, he's got time. Yeah, he's got plenty of time. I mean, if you look at our workout library and you just you just click the little anaerobic box, you'll see a host of workouts that, that target exactly what we're talking about right here. All right. And Sun is the next one. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, by the way. Um, you're a Cat 3 road racer and just finished traditional basement volume. Um, and you started general build uh, and you said that you're in the middle of that this week. I had a really tough time with the eight minute test as well as the SIL workout. That's one of our workouts this week. Essentially anything over FTP is giving you issues. So on your previous eight minute FTP test, they all had a good progression in terms of increases. You went from 269 to 274 to 282 in three months. Good job. That's a lot of improvement. But then the test this week netted 262 as I probably started too high thinking I could hold it. It's probably around... And then moving on, you say, I noticed on the last couple of weeks of finishing off the base period that I couldn't hold your power above FTP. So you've been doing the eight minute tests, but your latest FTP test showed that you, your fitness actually, or you should say you, you tested lower. My question is, if you thought I was overreaching and need to rest more, or is it that since I've been doing base for so long that my power above FTP has deteriorated? Is this normal? Yeah, son, I don't, I don't think you've seen an, an obvious deterioration just because you've been doing traditional base. I mean, there is a difference between the two approaches, traditional versus sweet spot, and sweet spot typically yields bigger, uh, obvious, more obvious improvements in FTP. 
but I don't think you're going to lose substantial fitness, not um, since November over the course of the traditional place, uh, traditional base plan. My guess is you are a bit overreached and you underperformed. So if there has been a slip, there may have been a slight one, but I don't think it's anything along the lines of, of what your last test showed you. And in general, yeah. too, if you uh, underperform an FTP test where you start out way too hard and then it just goes down, you can up your FTP a little bit because or you can also retest, but um, not everyone likes to test a whole bunch. Chad and I were just talking about this. We don't <laughs> like to test. Um, I hate testing. But you could uh, you could just you know up your FTP to where you think it is, and then as you get through more of the plan, it will uh, verify your FTP for you. And even though we might hate testing, we still know it's necessary. It's a necessary evil. Yep. It's I like don't going look to the to dentist. It, but... You just have to. Yes. <laughs> yep. Your exactly. life's going to be you... much better if you go. <laughs> and something you pointed out too, Nate, I, I see, and this is anecdotal, but I, I see a lot of people that do, when they start too high, it's pretty easy to get a very low FTP score or FTP as a result after that. Because when you start high, you exhaust yourself versus a person that starts easy, it ends up building up, right? I mean, ideally you get to the point where you're not starting easy and building up or starting hard and going down. You're, you're consistent, but it's, I mean, if you work really hard in the beginning like that, you're going to exhaust yourself. So, cause, uh, okay. So since Chad did this already, I'm going to announce something else that we're working on and, <laughs> All of these things, please don't hold our feet to the fire for timeline, but these, this is something new too, is we're going to make a video about how to execute an FTP test featuring Coach Chad. That'll be very dedicated, and we want to launch it before you do every FTP test so that we can... It's it's like having Chad coach you right before it to give you the the finer points to kind of... The things that to put in your brain, uh, even as you're reading the text, just a little, uh, you know, a two-minute... Primer. Yeah, primer primer for the the, the workout. Yeah, the the workout text that's within the FTP test is is very valuable, but I know a lot of us don't actually see that sometimes. We may have, I don't know, Game of Thrones going on or something brain like fog. that. Brain fog. Yep, brain yeah. fog, exactly. It's hard to read so, when you're testing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, certainly is. So, um, so, yeah. All right, Nick. Hi, Trainer Road crew. I've been enjoying the podcast and using Trainer Road for the first time this year after nearly 10 years away from bike racing. Welcome back, Nick. Keep up the great work. I have picked up a ton of good information on a variety of training issues and appreciate the chance to ask a couple of unrelated questions. So here he goes. First, can you help me understand gearing selection and how it relates to the use of an electronic trainer? I have a Wahoo kicker and I try to ride in my 4215 most of the time as that is the gearing I spend most of my time in on my 1x11 gravel bike. I notice, however, when I am suffering during an interval, I can shift up to the 53-tooth ring and my perceived effort goes down. I assume this has something to do with the flywheel speed. You're right on with that. My question is, am I getting the same training benefit and adaptation in either ring? My watts and cadence remain the same, but my perceived effort is just easier. Yeah, so this is a great question, and this is something where people will see that their power, their wattage uh, indoors is less than outdoors, and sometimes that's because of uh, cooling, but the other major factor is the inertia that you're riding. So when you're riding outside, there's a really high inertia, especially if you're on the road. Um, less if you're like going through something like sand on a mountain bike on a steep grade, but the kicker does a really good job in that flywheel. Uh, you get a lot of inertia and the faster you spin that flywheel, the closer it will be like to the road. It's one of the best trainers. The other, the only other one I think that's better is the Le Mans revolution. And that thing is and, super loud and it's not electronic. And to be clear, it'll be closer to the road at speed if you're if you're spinning it quickly, right? Because that's yep, the important so thing. That's, that's yeah. the, the second part. So when I ride the kicker, I ride it in my biggest gear possible so that I can get the um, a, a simulation of that it's going to be just like the... Um, have the closest inertia to what it is outside. It's a little bit louder, but I do that on purpose. And then sometimes if I'm doing like a, uh, uh, a pedal stroke drill or something like that, or I want to practice for some low cadence work for a mountain bike, I'll shift it all the way down and you'll have less inertia and you'll feel the pedal stroke all the way through even more. So in general, what I recommend is being your biggest gear on the kicker. So you get the the road-like feel and you kind of get the same, uh, the same, you're training the same way that you would outside. So I'm going to kind of, I, I think I'm agreeing with Nate, but I'm going to clarify a bit. The reason Nate says it feels more realistic is because Nate's a, Nate's a triathlete, right? Or, or does road races as well. For me, I'm a, I just bought a a fat bike. (laughs) That's true. He bought a fat bike. So in Nate's case, now what he'll have to do. And for me, what I always do, I actually ride the kicker down in my little ring on my road bike and I ride it way up on the cassette. 
The reason is, is because I'm trying to make it emulate the experience that I have when I'm outside. And when I'm outside, I'm mountain biking usually. And when I'm doing so, I'm climbing up something that's steep with very little inertia. And the kicker does a fantastic job of of emulating that experience so that it does every pedal stroke. You don't have, you can't rely on inertia to help spin that thing around. It's going to slow down on you every time. If there's any type of uh, off um, or any type of, of, of release or weaker portion of your pedal stroke, you'll feel that just like you do on a mountain bike when you're on a steep grade or on a road bike on a steep grade. So more than anything, it depends on the type of riding you're training for. Yeah, and that's, that's, that's the gearing that should, uh, that's the gearing you should use. I agree a thousand percent. Um, if you have like a regular trainer, something to check is you can spin up to like 30 miles per hour and then see how long it takes for your, um, rear flywheel to stop coasting. If it stops in like half a second, maybe look like a mag trainer, you have a very low inertia trainer. So, um, and maybe for mountain biking too, you want that. Like, I think you actually do like Jonathan said, but, uh, that's why people on like the, um, road machine, they'll buy the pro flywheel to put on it to make it more, to get a higher inertia and make it more road-like. Yeah. And you're still getting, um, as you said, you, you ask, am I getting the same training benefit and adaptation in either ring? Well, technically you're working at the same level of power, but when we're talking about that muscular endurance, Chad, that's something that's, it's, that's, that's where the difference will shine, right? Yeah. And that's why I ride much like Jonathan does with a small cog in the front, big or a small ring in the front, big cog in the back, because I like the resistance to be as steady and as demanding as possible. Basically, I like to eke every bit of productivity out of uh, every every minute I spend on the trainer. Yeah, and one quick thing, a self a sacrificial story on my end. Last year, I trained almost all the, all through the winter and the spring. I was in my big ring on my road bike and like halfway through the cog, and then I went into or halfway through my cassette, and then I went to uh, the first U.S. Cup in L.A. And there was this just super rolly course, not fast. And there was this climb that was just, I mean, horrendously steep, a short little thing. And I remember pedaling on it and thinking like, I think both brakes are on. I have a gale force wind blowing at me and I'm carrying like a 500 pound man on my shoulders. Like (laughs) it was so hard. And it was because I'd spent the whole time training with this huge level of inertia when then on race day, I didn't have it. So that changed yeah, directly point. after. It pretty much what yes, it boils it down is. to is, is train how you're going to race. Yep, exactly. Agreed right. completely. And then second, my season is designed around long gravel races, 150 to 200 plus miles. My A race is 200 miles, all gravel with rolling climbs. It sounds like the dirty Kansas. I don't know if it is not. Mm-hmm. Uh, would the cross country marathon high volume specialty va- uh, plan be the best selection? So I'll say that again. I ripped through it pretty quick, but the cross country marathon specialty plan that we have um, I'm starting two weeks of sweet spot base now, mid volume two, and your FTP has increased from 243 to 278 since starting the plan. Kudos. Good job. So nice. cross country marathon, Chad, I'm not sure. Yeah. It, it would work. I think the rolling road race is a yep. better fit because gravel racing is more akin to road racing than it is mountain biking. Exactly right. Uh, just because the surface is different, the, the power, if you're to graph your power, it's going to be a whole lot more like a road race. So, um, and then my plan Perfect. Yeah, that's your plan. It's laid out. Sorry about that. All right. We're going to move on to Casper's question. Uh, Casper says, fantastic podcast, guys. I'm fairly new to road racing. Uh, your main, it's been your main focus for the last two years. And you've previously done an Ironman for some years before that. Uh, and before that, you were an elite soccer player. Soccer has a place in my heart, uh, mm. Casper. So we're, we're close. I like you. Um, my races are from two hours up to four hours and 30 minutes. In 2015, I got my first three wins in racing. Good job. All wins in a bunch sprint, but slightly uphill, which made me, which uh, were made between two to 20 second gaps in the Peloton. So the stats on you as a rider, you're 32, you have all that stuff. We're not going to get into the details too much for people there. Um, but your FT- is F- FTP. Yeah. Yes. Your FTP from the last test was 294. So you're at 4.1 Watts per kilogram. So that's a, that's a fit, fit cyclist. Um, you went and you got, uh, some data that you got from a lab test and you said that it pointed out that you're probably not what you would call, or you're probably what you would call a puncher. You're an explosive t- style rider. So, um, here's the issue. Uh, I've had some troubles in races where an example, there are two climbs and they're at two to 3000, um, or two to three K's average, the grades at 8%. So just a, a normal short climb. And you'll go over those hills eight times over the course of a 125K race. So you have a a normal road race where you're doing laps. You have to do that climb a lot. It's the type of stuff that exhausts you. Um, 
guys with the same power to weight ratio beat you by several minutes. So the question, what exactly will happen to my numbers if I increase, um, or actually, first of all, Chad, what type of training he says that he's, he's having troubles. He's a good puncher. He says he's a good explosive rider, but he's having trouble on these type of climbs where it just keeps hitting him time and time again. Let me jump in before Chad, but it sounds like, uh, Andre Greipel or Cavendish, you know, mm-hmm. when it's a big long climb day, even though the same water over the climbs. Yeah, exactly. Cause you're more yeah. just geared towards being punchy, but I'll let Chad answer this. Yeah. So you're anaerobically geared. So for, for whatever reason, and I, you actually mentioned it, um, some somewhere earlier that you like to work hard. Um, you're addicted to the burn is, is how you put it. So I'm guessing that most of your training is done anaerobically and that's going to do certain things to, to, to how you perform, how much lactate you produce. And it's kind of going to neglect your, your aerobic system. Um, and I know where these questions go, so I don't want to get ahead of myself, but you basically need to improve for climbs of two to three kilometers at about 8%. Those are going to be pretty much VO2 max efforts, maybe at the lower end of things, um, higher end of things, depending on how fast you're going, but you're not going to be doing it for more than a few minutes at a time. Um, they'll definitely be above threshold, not too far above threshold. So your limitation from, from what I've read so far is, uh, your, your power at VO2 max. And now, uh, Casper mentions the fact that when he went and got some blood testing and, and it was tested in the lab, he said that, um, from the test, it was obvious that my ability to burn fat was extremely low, but on the other hand, I'm excellent, excellent at tolerating lactic acid. So the lab suggested to focus my training on my fat burning system. So kind of focusing on a weakness. So his related question to that is what exactly will happen to my numbers if I increase or by, or if I focus on training my fat burning system. And so he asked, will his FTP go up or will his peak power go down? Will it help me during hilly races? Well, so Casper, due to the, either the way you train or maybe the way your muscles are made up, maybe you have a higher, uh, composition of, of fast twitch fibers and you generate a lot of lactate, um, regardless you, you dump a lot of lactate at, at relatively low workloads, which means you can only work so hard or for so long before you start using a lot of sugar generates a lot of lactate, which does yes, generate a lot of power, but it's a short lived energy supply. So like I said before, you got to improve your power at VO2 max. And that's basically your aerobic system so that you can burn more fat, spare a little bit of sugar in the process of working up to those, those pivotal moments, those moments that you are really good at when you can actually dump a lot of lactate, generate a lot of power and, and get results that matter. Um, there are a couple of ways of improving your aerobic capacity though. It doesn't have to be done with long, slow rides. That is one, that's one way to do it. But long is, is the key term in that case. If you have a lot of time to go that route, then, then go for it. But you can also do it with, uh, BO2 max repeats. I mean, shorter, more intense stuff that derives a lot of the same benefit, if not all of it in, in much less time. Uh, Casper, I think we're the same kind of type. I'm also more anaerobically driven. And when I've won races, that's what it's been like. And I know I'm been focusing on triathlon, which is like not good for me, but Chad, I want your advice on this too. When I've had my best triathlon results, and, and maybe, you know, I, I also kind of limited the endurance and I didn't have the time for the, uh, high volume plan, traditional base, high volume. What I would do then is I would do these really long, especially training for Ironman or half Ironman, um, constant steady output at like 80% FTPs, 80% sweet spot. Mm-hmm. And I do that for like, I'd start with 90 minutes. I, I made them in the workout creator and I went up to like three and a half hours sitting at 80%. And that really felt like it, um, increased my endurance. And then in the, in the race, that's kind of what I would race at. And it it really got kind of easy after a while. Yeah. That's, that's almost a third approach. I mean, you do the long, slow distance, you do the short, high intensity stuff, or you settle somewhere in the middle and do a bunch of sweet spot work. I've had good results with all of it. It's boring though. So just, (laughs) just know it's like just staying at like 80% FTP for three and a half hours on the trainer. I I mean, I bought like Lord of the Rings. I actually bought an Xbox one because that was my (laughs) TT bike and I could, uh, I could play Xbox with my hands together you just pedal <laughs> yeah. pedal pedal oh, pedal pedal, pedal that's a reason well, why, that's the reason why all of us should have aero bars right there. And, there and there's one more thing casper provided us with quite a lot of information so i crunched some numbers and and he's actually his threshold falls puts him at about 4.1 watts kilogram which is respectable to say the least um that it does leave a lot of room for improvement in terms of racing at higher and higher levels 
Um, the, the problem is, is that he's pushed up to such a high percentage of his power at VO2 max that he's got no room to raise his threshold any higher. He's already working when at threshold at 90% of his power at VO2 max. So he talks about other guys with similar strength to weight ratios, dropping him on hills that, you know, they may have the same strength to weight ratio, but they've probably got higher VO2 maxes than he does. So they're not working at that same demandingly high percentage. So they can repeat those efforts, whereas a couple really take it out of him. So again, your mission is to, to elevate that VO2 max, address your aerobic capacity. How you go about it is up to you. My recommendation personally is VO2 max work maybe a, a long weekly three or four hour ride every week or two. But in, until you lift that aerobic ceiling, you're not going to be able to push your FTP up any higher. So your priorities are VO2 max work now, muscle endurance and FTP lifters later. So Casper brought up a question too um, about focusing on weaknesses or strengths and which to train. Um, my, my initial thoughts, Chad, is that, I mean, this really, this really depends on the event that you plan on doing and the demands that you'll have to do that uh, on mm-hmm. race day. Right. But yeah, is, is that's a, that's a common question that I see where people wonder, should I work on my weaknesses or should I work on my strengths? And if, if the event isn't anything that's particularly different from year to year, uh, what would you suggest, Chad? I mean, it's contextually uh, just- dependent, but absolutely work on your weaknesses um, if they're if they're limiting so you know limiters versus weaknesses weaknesses is just something you're not good at but limiters are things that actually cost you in race scenarios um, and then as far as the things you're good at you don't want them to slip away you still want to exploit them but maintenance like i've said uh, several times before takes very little so in his case you know, any of the the plans that uh, when we address his final question that i'm going to recommend will will work on the maintenance front so absolutely, in his case and in most people's cases, address your limiters, maintain your strengths. And his final question, Chad, that you just mentioned is how should he train for grades that are above 15%? Put yeah, the fork so, down. Say yeah. that again, Nate. <laughs> yeah. It's called fork put-downs. <laughs> yeah. Put the fork down. <laughs> so it's a good lighter for sure. Um, choose proper gearing You know, if you, if you have that option. Um, if you have to turn a... a big gear or relatively big gear slowly, then you're going to have to work on, you know, leg strength and obviously strength endurance. If you have something like a Wahoo kicker, going back to the last question, it would be a low inertia. So I would set that thing mm-hmm. in the smallest gear possible and just, yeah, that would help a lot. Yes. And then he, he also asked you know, specifically for trainer road training plans. Um, sweet spot base is a great way to start. Short power build is up your alley, even though it may not seem so. It addresses VO2 max probably more than it addresses anaerobic power. And then uh, either the rolling road race or the criterium plan have a lot of VO2 max work, a lot of what, what you need and a little bit of anaerobic maintenance. So they're both good fits for your situation. Uh, Giles. And once again, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly as well. Uh, over Christmas with visiting friends and family, a training plan can really get messed up. Let's say a week is missed. Should one just pick up from where they left off when they got, get back, or maybe backtrack a bit. Essentially, what's the best way to deal with missed training and any possible form drop as a result? And Giles, before we jump into this, we actually have a pod or we have a blog post that's coming up with information exactly on this. So look forward to that. Um, but Chad, go ahead. Yeah, so you're you're talking about a week's worth of missed time. That's not a big derailment. Um, a lot of the time, people come back from that better off than they were because they don't realize, you know, just how far they're pushing themselves into that overreaching, overtraining realm. Um, so that the rest often benefits them. The one thing to keep in mind is you may not be re- exactly firing on all cylinders when you return. So maybe a day or two of lower intensity, maybe a short, hard uh, effort at the end of one of those low intensity workouts and then get back into it. But you don't need to backtrack. Not, not after seven days. You can probably pick up exactly where you left off. For, uh, so let's say there are three weeks to a plan and they miss a week. Mm-hmm. I feel, and Chad, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's two situations. One, you're trying to peak for a specific A event. And in that case, I would just kind of forget that week of training and keep marching forward. And then two, you kind of have a season where you're not going to really peak just for one race. You're going to race all the time. And in that case, I'd probably just go uh, go back and just pick up the plan right where I left off. Is that your recommendation? Yeah. Yeah. Either either of those work. Yeah. If you have a deadline, like Nate said, uh, stick, to, stick to where that's going. One thing to yeah. keep in mind too, depending on the week that you're missing, look at the with our training plans, it makes it easy because we have the TSS laid out right there and you can look at the intensity of the workouts. But as Chad said, you're probably not going to be firing on all cylinders. And if you miss a week that was a, re- a recovery week, then chances are you didn't miss a whole lot as far as, you know, any type of gains. But if you've missed one where it's your biggest week yet in your training plan, 
or if you're coming back straight into that week, just get ready for it to be tougher. Let's yeah. The, the biggest concern is 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 with progressive workouts. So you know the the week you left, you're doing five by three VO two max, and then you miss a week of six by three, and you come back and and it's seven by three. Are you ready for that big of a step up? Maybe not. So you can base that on how how'd that five by three go. Was that absolutely grueling? And the idea of two more intervals seems impossible. In which case, do the six by three. I mean, just just temper it with a, a bit of common sense. And uh, so, what not to do? Don't try to put two weeks into one week, right? Yes, They'll be like, I got to make up all this training. I was it was easy, so I'm going to now double my TSS this week and do everything. Don't do yeah, that. Yeah, there's no cramming. That's that's not how the body works. So it's it's absolutely don't cram. Don't don't feel like you can make up for lost time by doing all of the workouts you missed in in a compact period of time. It doesn't work that way. JP says, love the show and thank you. I was thinking about starting the full distance triathlon base plan that you had, but in episode 13, you were talking about avoiding tempo rides. <laughs> we were actually, we were touching on, I think this very thing. When I looked into the rides for the triathlon base plan, it appears to be more tempo riding than any other zone. Is there a different type of benefit the triathletes get in the tempo zone? So first off, he, he's talking about these triathlon plans that we've just released. And this one is specific to full distance triathlon. It's a base plan specific to that. So Chad, yeah, go ahead. Um, technically, they are tempo rides because they take place at the very upper end of the tempo zone in what we call the sweet spot zone. So they're not really tempo so much as uh, a blend of tempo and, and muscle endurance or threshold work. Um so, so technically tempo, but not exactly tempo. Um, but in defense of tempo, there's nothing wrong with tempo. In fact, there's actually a lot right with tempo. It's a very good place to train. It yields a lot of aerobic adaptation. It's kind to your body. You can get away with doing a lot of it. And for a lot of people, it's enough stimulus to to stir positive adaptation, training improvements. So it, it's, it's unfortunately um, a much maligned training intensity that the, the point of it is that if you do all your time in tempo, you're never going to be particularly fast, but some of your time in tempo absolutely has its place, especially if your aerobic rides, you don't have time to do three and four hour rides. And if you look at this, um, it's in the context of the entire plan. So when you're doing those tempo rides, it's kind of like mm-hmm. the endur- endurance aspect of kind of the, the same percentage of FTP that you would ride during your Ironman. So we get into the the concept of race specificity. And so you're also doing, you know, some threshold and and sweet spot base and a little bit of VO2 max on the other days. And then you have one day of the week and it it depends on the plan, but of where you're kind of, uh, you're replicating your Ironman race and and riding at the percentage for that. So yeah. And and something you can get away with, and, and part of why those tempo workouts are included is, yes, that, that is, for, for a full distance or athlete, that's about where you're going to work um, when, when it comes time for your bike leg. Uh, on top of that, these are workouts that afford you the luxury of working on things like um, positioning, cadence, um, riding in your arrow, arrow bars, things that you can't necessarily get away with when the intensity is too high, when you already have so much on your plate that, that doing something else is just that much more taxing and perhaps distracting and comes at the expense of your workout. So these are lighter intensity where they're still beneficial, but you can work on other things that are very much important to race performance. Yeah. Like I'm looking at one race right now, Longfellow, four hours at pretty much your exact Ironman target. You do that on the trainer. Uh, that is such a good ride. I, I, I do the same kind of stuff too. So if you're a road racer, we'd probably train you a little bit differently, but because you're a triathlete and that's, we know like what percentage of FTP you're going to race around right around 65 to 75. If you're a pro, you're probably racing closer to 80, maybe a little higher than that. Um, but it's, it's the principle of specificity and that that's why those, those tempo-ish rides that are kind of lower of, of sweet spot are in there. Zeph, I seem to be in a unique minority situation where I can actually put out better power on the trainer than on the road. Testing on the trainer estimates an FTP of 277 watts, but on the road, I can only get an FTP of 242 watts. And you note that your heart rate is much lower outdoors than indoors. In races on the road, trying to hold 80% of FTP for a 70.3 distance is virtually impossible for me and results in cramping and totally beat legs. So what's going on here? Is it technique, mental, to do with road surfaces being rough or uneven? And you mentioned Australia. I don't know if Australia's roads are particularly rough, but it will take it as such. <laughs> uh, or is it something totally different? Uh, what are your insights, Chad? 
Uh, I'll weigh in on the FTP end and then turn the rest over to you guys. But I think uh, in terms of your FTP being that much better indoors than outdoors, I have to attribute that to just the steady resistance nature of a trainer. So I'm guessing that whatever road service you're on, maybe it's downhill and you're, you're under geared for it uh, or undulating for whatever reason, you can't dole out as steady uh, a, a workload or output as you can on the trainer. I've heard of like just a few people on the solo Twitch forum being like this and my this is just a guess or educated guess hypothesis is that uh, you're better at, you're not as good at the high inertia stuff. So maybe like, as we talked to before, if you do have something that allows you to uh, have more inertia on the trainer, try doing that to, to make it so that your indoor riding is more like your outdoor riding. Um, and it sounds so that'd be, like that'd be yeah. the opposite, right? He'd want to have something that is low inertia, like what he'd experience outside. No, no high inertia. Because outside you have a really high inertia, higher than the kicker right. can even do. So if he's so, got like a mag trainer right now and he's been training that for a long time with really low inertia, but on outside, I mean, unless you're doing, uh, I, I guess it really depends. So if you're doing, you're testing on a mountain bike and you're grinding up a hill very slow, but if you're really doing it, you're going fast, you're going 20 plus miles per hour during your FTP test, or you're on a, on a hill and you don't have to go 20, you're on a hill and you, you have something, I would go towards a high inertia trainer and try to simulate that so that your training is more like outside. And it's, yeah. And so it's Nate's spot on there. And as far as mental limiters, um, you know, Chad was talking about addressing your limiters just a little while ago. And, and I, I don't know, or the hard thing is it's difficult for us to comprehend our mental limiters because often we don't notice them. They're coming from the same source. Um, but I've noticed at least for, for me riding inside, I can focus and, and I like to think I'm a pretty focused person and I can actually get very, very good results. Mm -hmm. And perhaps just riding outside is a different environment that is more difficult to focus. That's really a question for you to answer there, Zeph. Um, road surfaces will definitely affect your speed and it might affect your mental, I guess, uh, focus a little bit there. Uh, you know, if you're getting frustrated with constant undulating surfaces or something that's rough. There, there are all of those things that you pointed out. I think the best way to start weeding through those is to try to align the circumstances you would have inside and outside and, and see if you can isolate one exact cause. Uh, any other suggestions on how to isolate that, Chad or Nate? Mm. Not really, no, no. None here. Cool. Hope that helps, Zeph. Um, you're just an awesome person because you're good on the trainer. So, <laughs> um, Greg. I don't understand form sprints, Coach Chad. I'm on a Wahoo kicker, and I pretty much spin out at around 140 RPM. The coaching text then seems to expect that I know if I did it well or not. I don't really know how to tell if I did it properly. Should I not spin out? Should I be able to better control winding down? What do you think, Chad? Yeah, form sprints done on a, a an ergo trainer, an electronic trainer, smart trainer, call them what you will, are a little different than, than anything else. You can't shift down into that small gear and just spin the same wattage quicker because the load adjusts to, to your cadence. So they're challenging. Um, in, in your case, and, and in my case, because uh, that's all I do is my workouts on a, on a Wahoo kicker. So I, I anticipate the sprint by bringing my cadence up to, you know, say 120 RPM. And then I wind it up to something sustainable. In my case, I can ramp it up to 190 before I start to basically fall apart, or I, I can't get it faster than that. And, and, and since it takes place over the course of 10 seconds, you just have to kind of chase the speed. So just go faster, 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 faster. And, and, and to the point where, and, and what I mean by, or doing it well is simply a matter of maintaining control, not bouncing around in the saddle, not, uh, just, just losing control, your knees, your feet, whatever. Um, and then with the kicker, you kind of just have to stop pedaling. Don't try to ride it out. Just stop pedaling, let the flywheel or the resistance, bring the flywheel back into control and then get back in it. I mean, it's a whole different animal on a kicker. So, uh, a bit more challenging. So, and to highlight what Chad said there, you ask, then are you expect, or you don't know if you did it properly or not. If you've done a form strength properly, you've gone to a high, a high or a sustainable cadence. that's high for you without bump bouncing around in the saddle. Right, Chad? Basically it's, it's, it's the highest controllable speed you can reach and hang on to for a few seconds. I mean, these are, these are 10 second long sprints. So you can only, you only have to tolerate it for so long or control it for so long. And don't worry about the kicker spinning out, by the way. Um, that That's nothing to, to really worry about there. Like Chad said, you still end up spinning quickly, right? And and the kicker is still going to keep you locked in at your power target too, keep in mind, right? It's going to be yeah, adjusting really, for that. 
So. The best way to do it on a kicker is, is kind of to, to, over the course of a few of these, determine what is your fastest controllable speed. Say it's 150 RPM. Then just target 150 RPM. Try to get it up there quickly and then try to hold that 150 RPM for the, you know, the, the remaining duration of that 10-second form sprint. John, uh, John has a situation that I think is somewhat similar, and we're going to run through um, a few of the uh, or the scenarios he has pretty quickly here. Um, so we'll we'll go back and grab any detail if we need. Um, he says, "I love Trainer Road and the podcast. I started using Trainer Road mid last winter and came into spring stronger. Through the season, I advanced from doing group rides at fourteen to sixteen miles an hour and barely hanging on to doing hilly advanced rides at eighteen to nineteen miles an hour, sometimes over twenty miles an hour. Good job, good to hear, John. So when the time came to move indoors, I thought I'd see a big jump in FTP from last year. Nope, dropped by about five percent." Undaunted, I left it static and started um, your sweet spot base mid-volume one with no problems at that higher FTP setting. Today, I did the six, so then that FTP setting he's talking about is what he had prior to the most recent test. Today, I did the six-week FTP test for the second phase of sweet spot base, thinking it would be higher than the last test and justify my higher setting. Nope, it was 5% lower than the last test. So I'm now 10% lower than last year. So before we go any further, John, I went through and I looked at your data. On test number one, you were using virtual power and you were using a Cyclops Fluid 2. And then on test number two, and and that was a 20-minute test, right? And then you went to a 20-minute test on a kicker for the next one. So you've changed power sources. So there's something to keep in mind there that not it's comparable. not going to read the same. Yeah, it can't. So never compare virtual power to a power meter or electronic trainer. You just can't do it. So when you get, let's say you you, you graduate from a uh, a fluid trainer or any kind of trainer to a kicker or like a quirk or something, it's just like a reset. We even have a button you can go and reset your career, your uh, personal records, and now your new FTP. I would trust the kicker. Um, well, trust it more than virtual Within power. Range. And, yeah. yeah. And, and that's and and to be clear, it's not just virtual power, but we're talking about having a consistent form of measurement. If you switch from a kicker to a power meter or something else like that, expect yeah. different results. A, a power tap to an SRM, just where it measures it, you, you're exactly. going to see probably a, a 5 to 10 watt difference in your uh, FTP. And, and that's two uh, very highly reliable power meters. Yeah, and even switching between the same model from one unit to the next, you'll, you're going to see variances. Well, really? Within reason. <laughs> they won't be big, hopefully, but within I, reason, you definitely will. So... And then the third test that you did, you went um, from the 20-minute test to an 8-minute test. So a different testing protocol. Um, you also mentioned that you were going through and you were doing some sweet spot work and going into the 8-minute test. Um, that That's a totally different type of power that you're putting out there. I shouldn't say totally different, but it's a higher intensity that you're putting out for those two 8-minute efforts, right, Chad? Yep, that's true. So you may have found or stumbled upon a test format that works better for you. And uh, in, in, in whichever one it is, doesn't really matter. Just stick to it. In, in general, it's the uh, it's the change between the power measurement. And so everyone else knows. I I once did the uh, twenty minute test and the eight minute test. I did it on a Tuesday and a Thursday, and my FTP ended up one watt different. It was I was I was like blown away. I thought I did something wrong, but it was crazy. <laughs> good good pacing. <laughs> so so yeah, it, you don't you ask? Do I just suck at the FTP test? Not at all. And don't worry, the training isn't making you slower. Just think of this like a scientist. A scientist would want to control the variables, right, when he performs his tests. So go about it in the same way. Just uh, test under the same circumstances. And like Nate said, it's probably a good time to just reset your personal records um, and and test anew um, the next time you do an FTP test. So Barry, hi, guys. I've been really enjoying the podcast since it started and the train road plans since I switched to them for last season. I had submitted a previous question about training plans um, and a setup, um, but now that you have the triathlon plans, it's fixed it. I had originally planned on performing traditional base because it set me up well last season. My question is, would it be beneficial to start with some low or mid-volume traditional base and then switch to the high-volume Olympic base plan? So he's talking about starting off with just traditional base and kind of chat how we talked about earlier, somebody switching from traditional to sweet spot. This is somebody that would be switching from traditional to one of the triathlon base plans. You say that you have time to do base one and two before switching to the triathlon plans. So your question, should I switch in the middle or should I just do the Olympic plan twice? 
So the triathlon base, the the Olympic triathlon base plan twice. Uh, it sounds like Barry, you're working with a lot of time here. Um, if for no other reason than variety, I would probably, I don't know, you would have to base on, on, on what you think you need. If, if maybe a little bit of a low intensity break, uh, in the traditional base route sounds like a better route for you before you dive into more formalized training, then that could be a good way to go. Doing the Olympic plan twice in a row, um, wasn't really how they were developed. Um, I almost think in that case, you'd be better served by doing maybe a sweet spot base, um, and then a shorter build Olympic plan, going back into a rebuild sort of thing. Um, I'm not sure returning or repeating the plan is the best way to go. And you mentioned, uh, Barry, that you're, you're at a pretty high level of, of fitness there because you're, you're at 3.87 Watts per kilogram last year and you want to get to four this year. Yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. So you've got, and you've got some good goals too. You want to be competitive in your age group at worlds in September. So Sounds like you have a lot of t- time. I assume that you have some other races. You have an A race in July, you say. So if your A race is in July, you have more than enough time to do go through a full, you, you have time to spare. So Another thing you could do is if you're, so if you are a little burnt or, or, uh, your bike is already pretty good and it is good. You don't need a very big gain from 3.87 to four uh, Watts kilo. You could do that that mid volume and then focus on a different sport. Cause the mid volume is going to be a little bit less intensity and say, okay, I'm going to use this time to really get in some more running miles or, or improve my swim. And so you, mm-hmm. you still have a lot of stress in your body, but, and then you can kind of jump into the uh, Olympic base plan. What do you think about that, Chad? I think that sounds like a great idea. Cause then you can kind of tone down the intensity for the bike and maybe work on something that isn't as strong. Um, ideally the run, the, the swim's probably going to work in either case, but, uh, and, and then dive in, uh, more, devotedly into the Olympic base plan. And the last question for today is going to be from Todd. Todd says in your winter training guide, that was a article that we just released recently. You can check it out on our blog. It's blog.trainerroad.com. You stress the importance of staying cool while doing indoor trainer workouts. However, I would think that getting hot, not overheating yourself, but getting hot is an additional stress that would be useful to become adapted to. If I rode for two hours at 200 watts at 60 degrees, it would be less stressful than two hours at 200 watts at 80 degrees. You're right in that sense. Of course, a 20-minute FTP test and a very hard shorter workout, or during a very hard shorter workout, it's important that getting too hot is not the limiting factor. But for other workouts, especially longer, easier rides, why not do them without the fan and let the heat be an additional stressor on the body? Um, Chad, go ahead and take after this one. I know we all have experiences with this. So yeah, that seems like an unnecessary uh, discomfort to endure when when it's not really applicable to what you're going to be doing. Um, if you're coming up on your event, that's an absolutely excellent approach. You have to familiarize yourself with uh, not only the stress of it and the perceived exertion or the you know the, the perception, but but also certain limiting factors that have to take place or have to be accommodated physiologically. So close to your event, that makes sense. Um, prior to your event, I think all you're doing is handicapping yourself. You're, you're seeing to it that the work is needlessly um, more challenging than, than it has to be. I have some. I have a study about this. So I just brought it up on our blog. I have a posting from 2012 that says, how to put out more power using heat acclimation. So um, Chad's right. What you, what you don't want is your heat to be your limiter during the time you're working out. So if you're doing VO2 max or, or anything, FTP work or pretty much any workout, you don't want to have the heat stop you from putting out more watts. Um, but what they did find is the, you know, I think the University of Oregon did a study where it put people in cool and hot conditions. Hot conditions were 100 degrees Fahrenheit, 30 deg- 38 degrees Celsius. And each gro- group rode for 45 minutes. Um, and they were uh, just really easy, like super uh, two or even zone one workouts. And what they found is that the the people that worked in the hot conditions actually improved both their performance and hot and in cold conditions. So um, what that says is, is I, I wouldn't do all your workouts in the heat, but maybe some of your recovery rides. And it's going to actually, if you do recovery rides, it's going to, it puts more stress on your body. So there, there's a time and a place for it. And also though, if you're going to be going racing Kona or someplace, uh, one of the, our employees here, he races in where the Philippines Costa Rica. Yeah. Dave Coast, races in Dave, Taiwan. Taiwan. Dave races people racing all over where, yeah. but yeah. And, uh, Trevor races in Costa Rica. If you're going to be, it's the principal specificity. So if you're going to be racing in the hot, yes, totally get on the, the trainer is an excellent way to practice in the heat. If you're, uh, you know, from Minnesota and it is not going to get hot enough, you can get into, I've heard of, uh, pros they'll do their easy rides in a, uh, bathroom with a shower on to get the humidity. 
but, but make sure they're easy and you can get the acclimation without having to go hard and putting like a whole bunch of stress and ruining some of your key workouts in the week. Yeah. And that's, that's it right there. So when, when you train in the heat, you're effectively putting a ceiling on and where your performance can go. Your body has protective mechanisms. It's not going to allow you to, to work too hard. It's not going to allow you to keel over from heat exhaustion. Um, so if you're doing something that's going to be already challenging, VO2 max efforts spring to mind, working at 120, 125% even of, of your threshold, doing it in, in high heat, your body's not going to allow you to do it. You, you'll be happy or lucky to, to eke out 110, 115%, in which case you're kind of meaning, missing the intention of the workout. So with easier rides, absolutely. And even when it comes to acclimation, that the rides only get so challenging if you're doing it in severe heat. And two, it doesn't, you have to do this all the time. In this study, they showed that the riders did it for six days, every day for six days, and they got that improvement. So it's not yeah. like you have to be like, okay, every ride I have to do forever is going to be super hot. Yeah. And, and, and one thing, and just to highlight what Chad said, uh, and for those that are Dark listening, Dark. I'm sure you guys have realized that Team Sky, for example, when they're training, they actually, they do a lot of training from sea level, climbing up and down around sea level, and then they actually sleep high. And this whole altitude training thing of, of training high and sleeping low or sleeping, or I should say training low and sleeping high, it's kind of a hotly debated topic. But one thing that we do know is that if you're working up at elevation like that, much like if you're working, if you're in a very hot environment, you're limiting your work capacity during that workout. And you're not able to, to perhaps reach your full potential during that workout. So it's important, as he said, it's something that you should think of. It, it should increase progressively as you get closer to the time of your goal event. And if you can do that, it's, it's very beneficial. I know Liz Lyles, one of our sponsored athletes, she's an Ironman top 10 finisher in the pro class. And she's getting ready for Panama right now. She's been on the trainer nonstop and she's been using humidifiers and heaters. So um, she didn't do it earlier on, but she's been doing it recently because she's getting close to it. So it's certainly there, but in most most cases, it's not a great idea to just cook yourself in, in the room when you're training. So hopefully that, that gives you some good perspectives on that, Todd. And Todd also finishes off by saying, keep up the amazing stuff, the app, the workout, now the podcast. I'm not going to withhold the comment. Yeah. Yeah. There we are. Right. So on back. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) All right, guys, thanks for joining us. Those are all the questions we have for this week. You can reach us at support at trainerroad.com where you can, or I should say you can submit your questions there, support at trainerroad.com. You can find this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Just search for trainer road and leave us a review. If you feel so justified. Thanks guys. We'll talk to you next time. We do five stars. Thanks everybody.